Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah here. Just a quick reminder that if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word to help us inject curiosity and generosity back into difficult conversations. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Now let's get on to today's Principle of Charity's personal challenge. And I want to begin our Principle of Charity personal challenge with a quote from Albert Einstein today. This is what he says. He says, to act intelligently in human affairs is only possible if an attempt is made to understand the thoughts, motives, and apprehension of one's opponents so fully that one can see the world through their eyes. And in this vein, and with a mindfulness as a backdrop, when you are next in the midst of an argument, consider these four things. Number one, see if you can be mindful of when the feeling of annoyance with the other arises. Two, examine why you are feeling annoyed. Is it because you think, for example, the other person is stupid or immoral? Three, remember to see if you can stop identifying this person with only that aspect you dislike. For example, that they are immoral. And four, try and view them as a whole, as a human being who has feelings just like you do, and that not everyone feels the way you do towards them. This will help reduce that fixed negative label you ascribe to them. And just in doing these four things, you will probably get a small percentage improvement in the world of charity and come closer to a truer perspective of them. And best of all, you may also end up as more persuasive. Emil, what's the question and our topic for today? Well, thanks, Lloyd. This is the second half of the topic, is there anything we can do to mold our kids? In the first half, we had world-renowned behavioural geneticist Robert Plowman on, whose twin and adoption studies, as well as the growing genetic revolution, has led him to the conclusion that there's not much we can really do to mould our kids if we're talking about any of the big traits we care about, and that instead of putting our energies into trying to change them, we should spend our time enjoying our relationship with them. Now, today, we have the acclaimed parenting and child development expert, Michelle Borba, who's written books such as Parents Do Make a Difference, and her recent one, Thrivers, The Surprising Reason for Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. Now, Michelle has worked with countless, countless parents and children of all ages from all sorts of backgrounds, and she is crystal clear in her view that parents can do a lot to help mold their children into having the sort of character traits that are essential for our kids to thrive. She sees these seven traits as being self-confidence, empathy, self-control, integrity, curiosity, perseverance, 
and optimism. Now, the crucial point here is that she's not just saying that these character, character traits correlate with thriving kids and adults. It's that these character traits are both not fixed and, most importantly, are teachable. At the same time, Michelle has been at the forefront of the movement against the sort of obsessive helicopter parenting that's been turning so many youngsters into overworked, achievement-focused machines filled with anxiety and and too often with uh, depression. She wants to turn our attention to character traits that encourage a much broader definition of success, a sense that our kids are thriving as human beings, happy in themselves and engaged in their lives, in their relationships and their pursuits. So, you know, Lloyd, for a moment there, I was a little relieved that Robert Plowman allowed me to give up trying to mould my own kids and allow mm-hmm. me to just enjoy hanging out with them. But I'm I'm equally excited to have Michelle on to present the other side and to show us what we can do to make a difference, but in a way that isn't as grasping as our fear-fueled parenting culture wants us to be. So before we bring her on, tell us a little more about Michelle. Emile, Michelle is an internationally recognised parenting and child development expert. She has a doctorate in educational psychology from the University of San Francisco and began her professional life as a specialist teacher to children with learning disabilities. Michelle's guide to raising children focuses on strengthening the child's character and moral intelligence and her evidence-based advocacy for cultivating empathy in children has captured, Emil, the attention of governments, corporations and educators across the globe. She was named Honorary Chairperson for Self-Esteem in Hong Kong consultant for the Character Education and Civic Engagement for the U.S. Department of Education, and also Goodwill Ambassador for MIT's One Laptop Per Child project. Michelle is also an author. Her books have been translated into 19 languages. She's a frequent guest on the U.S. Today Show and has received numerous awards, including the National Educator Award and the Outstanding Contribution to the Educational Profession by the Bureau of Education and Research. Michelle's a parent to three sons. Let's bring on Michelle. Well, we're so excited to have you on the podcast, Michelle. And to take a cue from your great book, Thrivers, we're practicing the curiosity character virtue here on the podcast, asking (laughs) our guests to sort of step into a more reflective space. So, Michelle, in the, in the last episode we had of the podcast, we had the behavioural geneticist Robert Plowman on, whose book Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, sort of blew my mind. And it says in a nutshell that DNA influences pretty much all the characteristics that make us who we are, not just our height or medical conditions, but our IQ, and particularly for this conversation, our big personality traits. And it's not just that on average DNA predicts 50% of these things. It's that the other 50%, the nurture part, is half influenced by DNA and what he coins the nature of nurture. But the other half of the nurture bit is really so random and unsystematic that we can't use it to really mold little people in a meaningful way. Now, Robert cites what he says are pretty uncontroversial twin and adoption studies that show this, as well as the growing evidence that comes from genetics. Now, I I confess, as a parent, I've got three boys like like you, I understand. It left me a little exasperated at how little I could really do to affect my kids, and unless you're talking about true neglect or trauma, which Robert acknowledges does have an effect. But it also left me a little more chilled, taking his advice to focus instead on, on actually enjoying my time with my kids rather than trying to mould them into perfect little humans. So, Michelle, welcome. I'm desperate to hear what you think of all of this and to tell us 
as a child development experts, what you think we can and what we can't do in terms of really molding our children? Oh, I love that question because I think it also comes down to, so we parents, do we really make a difference? Yeah. And I say we do. We do. Number one, we do because I've got three boys and they're as different as night and day. It's Russian roulette. And a lot of it is not based on DNA. It's based on experiences. Even though I think I'm raising them exactly the same, in reality, they've had different teachers, they've had different coaches, they've had Mm -hmm. all different kinds of elements. Number two is certainly their personalities are different, but you can still implant what's called character strengths. And you can do a major difference on that one. You can also make a difference in terms of their resilience strengths, because those are skills. And skills don't have anything to do with DNA. They have to do with good old teaching and modeling and coaching and what we think and believe is important to raise our kids to be strong human beings. How do you think about genetics and DNA and I guess the guardrails that might put around or or the spotlight that puts on your capabilities as, as a growing young person? And also, just the difference between personality and character traits, I'd love your thoughts on. But first, how do you think about genetic inheritance when it comes to looking at children? I think that's the most important question for parents is to look at what's our natu- our children's natural nature right. and to be able to, com- to stretch them to be the best they can be that particular human being. The mm. key in life is to take and figure out who each of our children is mm. and then take them to up a level. And that is, I think, one of the most core questions in terms of parenting. I think a, a big concern that I find is that we have become such a GPA test-driven society mm. that we're only looking at one element of our child. When in reality, we're missing the whole kid. Mm. What's going to help that kid be able to be the best they can possibly be the rest of their lives? What makes that child unique? What is that child's strengths? And if we take each child for who they are, that alone becomes a whole new template that we can say, okay, that's the kid I've got. Now, what am I going to do to help that kid become their best? Yeah, that's fantastic. So in in a sense, you take what you've got, which we understand is substantively, but not entirely genetically influenced. And and just going to personality versus character traits, as I understood from Robert, some of the big personality traits, agreeableness, there's even optimism, and we'll get to that down the track, but they are substantively, not entirely genetically orientated or influenced. How do you think about personality versus a character trait? Once again, I've got three kids and they're as different as night and day. And what makes them different is I've got an introvert, I've got an extrovert. I remember being in the in the uh, grocery store aisle and everybody's saying, isn't that lovely that you adopted three children? They look <laughs> different. There's not a thing that's the same about them. But in the end, what's different is that I also say, regardless of he's the extrovert, she's the introvert, whatever that is, I'm also going to take a moment to say, so what are the strengths, the character strengths, like Mm. uh, could be generosity. I want them to be generous. I want them to be honest. They don't, they're not born with those traits. Those are ones we need to instill in our kids. And that's when parenting steps up to the plate and goes, there's where we make the difference. Yeah, so the really the distinction is that personality, I think a lot of parents think they can actually influence or control their kids' personalities, but that's something you're accepting. I'm accepting the personality. I got what I get. It's Russian roulette on what you get for a kid. Yeah, right. But now it's down sitting down and saying, okay, now I've got these little critters in front of me. How do I want them to turn out? 
if I looked at these children 40 years from now and had them eavesdrop on my family, what would it be that they are remembering as the most important memories that helped them become who they are? Am I mm. seeing the traits, the character strengths in them that when they were two and three and four, I want them to be responsible or I want them to be honest or I want them to be trustworthy? Are those traits in that child? I Chances are that temperament isn't going to change. That personality is not going to change. But boy, if I did a good job as a parent, their character strengths will line up and I'll see those in action. Before we go into the character traits, let's look at where you think parents so often go wrong by trying to overly control every part of their kids' lives. And you've been mm. such an active advocate against that sort of single-minded, success-focused homework and extracurricular activity addicted parenting mentality that's really taken over so much of the world, it seems, particularly yeah. for middle class and, and more affluent parents, I imagine. Does that sort of parenting work and, and how does it affect the kids? You know, you've seen so many children caught in this loop. The reason I wrote Thrivers, Emil, is that I was seeing a very disturbing change in American children, though I've worked on 19 other countries and chances are I'm seeing it in a lot of others. And that is, though we all love our kids desperately, there isn't a parent anywhere in the world I haven't met that doesn't want their kid to be happy and successful. I think we have gotten to the point where we have so overboard pit pushed the grade, the test score that we've forgot the human being, the child. And I, the, you know, the best thing I've ever heard, Emil, is actually I did focus groups with hundreds of kids and it was middle school kids around 11 and 12. They're so darn smart. All you have to do is ask a kid and they always give you the right answer. Mm. And I said, so I hear you're the most stressed out generation on record. Why are you so stressed out? And one little guy looks at a puzzle that's on the table behind me and said, because of that. I said, what's wrong? He said, do you see the puzzle isn't finished? I said, yeah. He says, well, that's like us. I said, well, what are you missing? He goes, all the stuff on how to be good humans, how to get along with others, how to solve problems. That's the stuff we need, you know, and that's the stuff we're not getting. It's all about, did you get the good score? How many did you get right? And that, I think, is the first real mistake. I think if we do anything right now, maybe the pandemic has something that has taught us that it's a different world. We're raising our children in a far more accelerated, digital-driven, uncertain world, and are our children prepared for it? Are they prepared to handle the stress that comes their way? And they should, because one of the best things about resilience is that a child who says, I got this, if we always are there, if we always solve the problem, if we always coddle the kid, if we always rescue the child, what we're doing is raising a dependent child. And what mm. we need at this point is a kid who has agency. That's not going to be a two-year-old, but a slowly along the way, we've got to slowly embed in this kid, you got it, sweetie pie. We got to watch our footwork. And if we're always doing, what we've got to start doing is stepping back and say, you got it, and make sure they've got the skill set to be able to do it. We can teach that. It's a sort of paradox that parents get into or a loop where you, yeah. you have this instinct, do you want to help kids? You want to control. But of course, if you control too much, you're taking away their control, aren't you? And, uh, yeah. and well, they end I up in a worse position. Maybe we can do something real simple and we can just take this down to practicality 101. Maybe our brand new motto should be never do for your child what your child can do for themselves. And the moment yeah. you see that you are hindering or rescuing and that child is capable of making the bed or using the microwave or doing his homework by himself, start stepping back. Because that's the first way you, you boost is agency, is start checking your own footwork. Yeah, it's the molding impulse of parents that 
seem to have gone, um, well, it's gone in a direction that you're saying is not helpful. It's the direction of actually trying to control their days, control their homework, yeah. turn them into successes, and rather than focus on the character traits, which we'll get into now, which you see as being much more conducive to the kids' ability to thrive rather than just to sort of strive for, in a sense, well, the parents' definition of success. Emil, here's another thing that's really interesting that maybe can make us all sit up. It, in our obsession to raise the successful child, we put so much emphasis into that, obviously because we love our children desperately and dearly. Yeah. We want them to get into college. We want them to get all those accolades. The number one time they're most likely to drop mm -hmm. out of school is into freshman year, first semester of college. Ah. I, uh, Just when you I, when when your control is waned a bit, we finally like, got them yeah. there. We think we've hit the silver lining, and then they come back, and they keep on coming back. I I dealt with twenty five hundred Ivy League counselors, and they said one of the things that's happening is they are smart. Their GPAs are in the ozone. They've actually their IQs are going up as well over the mm. last few years. But the other thing that's happening though is that we haven't prepared them for a life without us. We haven't prepared them for the first B plus. We haven't prepared them to be able to handle how do you get along with another human being? And as a result, we've robbed them of resilience. Well, let's go into these character traits you identify, which which are self-confidence, empathy, self-control, integrity, curiosity, perseverance, and optimism. They're extraordinary ways of thinking about what's important to, you know, what's important to be a human being and, and what you need to be a happy and flourishing person. But what I love in your book, which I've got to say is very different from some of the other, even the great Carol Zweck mindset and resilience books, is that you give a lot of great examples about how to teach these characteristics rather than just identifying them as being correlative. Oh, um, and you. it is a bit of a bugbear of mine in some of the other books where you people have come up with these great theories about what correlates to success, but what do we do about it? And can we do anything about it? But before going to can we, let's just look at curiosity if we could for a moment, uh -huh. because that's in a sense the guiding principle of this podcast. How would we help a child become curious in ways that in ways that stick, Michelle? Well, the first thing is, Carol Dweck would say, you develop a mindset in him that says you are a curious little human being and keep right. open to possibilities. What we know, Emil, is that our children have that curious flair. Oh, my gosh, they drive us crazy with their why questions when they're three, four, and five. And the yeah. first thing we've got to do is keep the why questions coming. But we also stretch them a little bit. After the why, we can flip that a little bit of what do you think? How will you find out? What we also discover about curiosity, NASA has probably been doing the most dismal studies. They've been tracking our kids for just decades and discovered that around the age of five is when they're the most curious and then it nosedives. So by the time they become adult, it's just not there. We've also programmed them so everything has to have a set answer. Maybe it's nothing more than brainstorming every night or what do you think, sweetie pie? Or here's a bunch of straws. How many different ways? Can you make them into different forms or designs? Uh, one of the most interesting things, I was doing school visits and school visits and school mm. visits to find where are some places that are seem to be doing this really well. And I remember Campbell Hall, uh, just as Los, outside of Los Angeles, and I asked a group of middle school kids, what's the best part of the day after school? <laughs> so they said, well, what's so great after school? He said, it's Thinker Lab. 
I said, what's Thinker Lab? He says, you just go and you can think and you can make stuff. And they put all these things like typewriters and phones and computers and you take them apart and you put them back together again. And, oh, it's just so fun working and collaborating with each other. As they said that, I recall reading the bio of Stephen Jobs. And that's exactly what his father did in his garage. One of the most interesting places I've ever visited in the world is MIT Media Lab out of Cambridge. Absolutely brilliant geniuses. But when I interview the, I mean, Surrey, artificial intelligence, driverless cars, name something, it's invented in this place. So I interview the director and I say, how do you get such extraordinary curiosity to thrive in this place? And he said, oh, we got a few rules. Number one, failure is an option. He says, what parents are doing is once the kid makes a mistake, it's like give up, quit. And the kids are becoming so failure pie. No, failure is an option. As soon as you make a mistake, good for you. Admit it. That means that you're going to figure out how to innovate another way. Make it playful. Make it fun. Make it open-minded and collaborate. You get more curious when you're working with others. Emil, the most fascinating thing about that lab is that it wasn't rows of classroom desks all in math or all in science. They had mathematicians working with musicians, working with, you know, scientists, working with artists, all in the same genre, creating what they wanted to invent to make the world a better place. Wow. I mean, it's it's a vision of a different sort of education, if you could put that into schooling, where schooling doesn't I guess, school the curiosity out of you, but schools it into you. Yeah, that's what we're worried about. We are very worried about that because what I discover about curiosity is not only does it make your kid a peak performer, but it also makes your child a resilient human being. Because I swear one of the highest correlations of a resilient kid is a kid who thinks outside the box. Mm. When he's struck with a problem, he goes, oh, that's okay. Here's another way of doing it. And you're only seeing one option or one grade or one answer you really are becoming risk adverse, and that's a real danger. You, you get stuck in a in a, in a yeah. cul-de-sac. Let's turn to evidence for a second, because I know in your book you acknowledge that a trait like optimism is notoriously hard to teach. And I've got a kid, one of my mm-hmm. three, who, who's naturally quite pessimistic. I can sort of push optimism on him and probably make him a little more optimistic, but I'm not sure I'm moving the dial meaningfully. In particular, as you say, <laughs> when they go to you know university or college, as as, as you as you call it in America where that will stick. But are there any studies that actually sort of prove in a sense that the traits you identify can be meaningfully taught or is the evidence more anecdotal just from working with kids? Uh, Number one, where the seven came up, I think is really an important point. Once I realized mental health was plummeting around the world in kids, I began to look at the research and Mm. it isn't in any of our parenting books, unfortunately. Emmy Werner, who studied the most amazing groups of kids for 40 years, studying the same group of kids who were facing adversity and watching them as they grew up. How do they handle adversity? And she discovered, lo and behold, a third of them do. It has nothing to do with DNA. It was ordinary things that they'd learned along the way to keep the stress down and their resilience up. Then there's Ann Matston, who did the same thing with looking at kids in poverty zones and homelessness and war zones. Um, Norm Gormese looked at parents, mothers who were schizophrenic. How did their kids turn out? Michael Rudder looked at poverty-driven places. What I was looking at are these longitudinal studies And then I got myself a set of post-it notes and I'd look at, okay, what are the most highly correlated strengths that keep coming up over and over again in that study, that study, and that study, and that has skill sets in them that are teachable? Because 
who's got time to just look at it and thinking that the whole thing is locked up into DNA? Yeah. There's phenomenal things. Look at in terms of optimism. Uh, I think one of the, the greatest stuff is company University of Penn, that they have been using phenomenal uh, bits of research that I was drinking in Thrivers and going into army bases and teaching soldiers before you go into battle how to keep a more optimistic outlook so you don't get PST. And it is mm -hmm. working. And it's uh, Navy SEALs. Navy SEALs were extraordinary to me. Um, I've Actually, Emil, I've worked on 18 Army bases. And what they told me is some of the stuff we're redoing, we're doing is retraining our brains. And actually, why aren't you teaching this stuff to kids? Because it's keeping us more resilient, but it's also keeping us cognitively intact. Okay, what are you doing? I asked. The first thing is we figure out what our stress signs are. We spend a lot of time recognizing what they are and passing them on to each other. We could do that at home real simply. Mm. Take a, you know, take a month and just notice that each kid's a little different before they have the meltdown. Your mistake is, my mistake is waiting for the exorcism and then saying, calm down, doesn't work. But the mm. second thing is, once you know the stress sign, it's and you point it out to the kid, they say some kind of a mantra like, it could be nothing more than calm down or chill or you got this. And then we take one, two breaths. A slow two breath from deep in your abdomen, like you're riding up an elevator, hold it and slowly let it out. If you do that and you keep doing it, it'll keep your stress at bay, your cognitive abilities high, and you can, I'm telling you, walk into the most adverse situations and at least have some kind of a tool. Yes. Well, you said something in a TED talk that I saw uh, a few years ago that I found a bit scary, Michelle, that, that empathy as a character trait in kids has gone down 40% over time yeah. and narcissism or self-absorption absorption has gone up 50%. So how do we change this? How can we exercise empathy muscles? And, and equally importantly, how can we make the sort of self-absorption muscles atrophy? And I guess part of my question is just the tide of culture that we need to swim against in order to make it happen. You know, empathy, you've, you've identified it as almost the, the most important trait of all. How, how do we improve our empathy ability? I think, first of all, we've got to keep in mind that empathy is a social glue that holds a civilized society together. When that goes and it's fraying, which it is right now, you're seeing the outcome of it. Second, you hit something right the nail on the head. Yeah, we're going against the culture. But good parenting is always intentional. Good parenting is doing a soul search and say, what do my kids need? And 72 different studies were the ones who analyzed that result. It's now spilling over to other countries. So number one is recognize what the research says. Our children are hardwired to care, but unless we nurture it, it lies dormant. I think that's groundwork number one. The fascinating thing, and it just keeps spiraling up, Emil, is that number two, Yale looked at us as moms with our sons and our daughters behind two-way mirrors. How do we do? Not so well with our boys. We do a great job with our daughters. We talk about emotions and feelings far more with our daughters. At age two, we already are telling our sons, boys, don't cry. You're going to lose mm. your friends that way. We don't talk emotions. What does that have to do with empathy? Empathy is feeling with another human being. And when you feel with that person, hopefully that's going to kind of push you to act in a compassionate way. That's another thing. We got to teach that. But the gateway to that is emotional literacy. You can't act in a compassionate way unless you can turn and say, daddy looks upset or mommy sounds sad or grandma, she looks really tired. 
emotional literacy, we've got to talk emotions far more. And what our kids are doing, especially after two years of COVID, is looking down at a screen and not up at a face. Yeah. I, I want to look at the sort of screen culture, because in that same talk, you were concerned that the online environment wasn't that suitable to, to develop the sort of empathy muscles we need to develop. And kids need to get out there, meet others face-to-face, and, and, and that's where we learn how to be in community. I'm wondering if you still think that's true or whether there's an argument that in the online world, whether it's playing video games whilst chatting to friends or just getting together in person, but all huddled around phones and swapping social media messages, which we see so many kids do, but are they just new but equally legitimate forms of social interaction, which can be used to develop traits like empathy in the same way as if you were chatting in real life and playing basketball with friends? Here's the thing. How much empathy does a child already have when he's playing uh, a game or texting? Because if his sole measure of connecting with another person is through texting, then he's going to be robbed of the possibility of face-to-face communication, face-to-face connection, and reading the emotions of someone else. That's the hard part. You can still make up for that. And I see uh, many teachers are doing fabulous jobs with cooperative learning, with paired sharing, turn to your partner, and even in home. I think one of the coolest rules that you can start age two to, to make sure that this digital generation who's looking down starts looking up, one rule, always look at the color of the talker's eyes. Mm-hmm. If you do, you look up at the person when you're talking. And I say that, Emil, because I, every day I'm working with different schools or settings in different states or countries, and every single headmaster is saying children are lonelier, They're, they are not reading each other like they used to, teens are telling me that, and there are uh, far more risk adverse or social anxiety is kicking in. That are all our yeah. skills that haven't been exercised during COVID. Don't go raising the white flag. We can still teach those. And the best way is never by telling a child, but by showing them. Let's go outside and say hello. Let's go wave to the person. Let's go always look at the color of the talker's eyes. And what you'll have is a strong generation of kids. It it does seem like when you see kids looking at their phone the entire time, that they are able to control their social interactions so exactly that they're never put in uncomfortable places like you might be if you're if you're on the bus for example and you're listening to music you can stay in your small little world but if you're forced to sort of chat to people and you've got interactions that are unexpected it can put you in places that might force you to exercise some of those character traits and that so the so do you think of the online world as being in a sense not exposing kids to the sort of interactions they need to develop those muscles or can they develop them in the online world in a sense they've got more kids they're exposed to but just they're exposed to them online but you mentioned something that i think is the real takeaway here and that is when you're only texting and you're only emailing and you're only doing whatever it is on, on the the app that you prefer you're really only communicating on a surface level you're not right. getting to a deeper level and what many kids are telling me when i do focus groups with them fascinating teens, very, very sharp kids are saying there's something about us that we can't engage with others like we used to. We're afraid to disagree with them. Yes. Uh, That is a danger. And we're also seeing that in colleges. They're saying they're seeing a different population, very smart kids, but more risk adverse who are afraid to think outside the box. See, there's an amplifier effect here. If you put two traits together, I don't care which traits they are, any two, but if you put empathy and curiosity together, 
oh, you got a change maker. That's a kid who's going to think outside the box and now think about others. Those two blend together. But in order to do that, you've really got to step into the other person's shoes. Emil, we're more likely to empathize with those like us. Our race, our culture, our age, our income. We want to expose kids and get them out of their comfort zone. So they're feeling with all different kinds of who is that guy? What does he stand for? And I always tell kids, hey, you don't have to agree, but try to understand where he's coming from. I think that's what we're failing to do these days. Right at the heart of what we try to do on the podcast. So that's sort of Mm -hmm. music to our ears. But it seems to me, and I was just thinking about stepping back at the history of education and parenting approaches that there seem to be like two philosophies. Tell me if this rings true or not. One sees kids as essentially naturally who they are and that our job is to create a safe, nurturing, supportive environment for them to grow fully into themselves. The other model says, putting aside some of these genetic differences that we can't do much about, kids are more like blank slates with instincts that can be unruly, even lazy. And so so it's our job to socialise them into becoming successful, productive, happy members of society. And and in my limited reading of education parenting um, books, I often feel that it's the emotional inclination to one of these poles that governs the advice, whether it's, you know, Rousseau's treatise Emile, um, uh, or your books today, even through those, that very Confucianist type approach in the East, which which does focus much more on the moulding extreme, that kids need to be moulded and socialised. There's always an assumption of what kids are and will become if left unchecked. How do you think the fashions have changed in the last few decades and and how does it differ across cultures? I love that question because I get the really fun thing being going in and out of schools all over the world. Mm. And it is absolutely mind-boggling on how different they are from, I mean, the most... Innovative school I've ever seen any place in the world is called the Green School in Bali. The entire thing is made out of bamboo. There is no huh. technology anywhere. You take your shoes off when you walk in. There's only a blackboard. Kids are sitting on the floor, but man, are they over the top in terms of strong huh. thinkers. They're very smart kids, but it's a school that set it up and say, hey, how do we reimagine? I think this is the piece on this, Emil. How do we reimagine what our kids need coming up five years from now, 10 years from now? And I'm seeing so many different new trends of, hey, we got to mix this up. For instance, in many schools in the United States, I'm seeing finally the whole child coming in. It used to be the A's and here and a more rigid approach. And now all of a sudden, hey, let's let's really help the whole child emerge because that's how we're going to help the child be the best they can be. Hmm. When you're approaching some of the East Asian cultures, the cultures influenced by Confucianism, where as I understand it, there's a sense that people are socialized and molded into society and that the job of parents is not just to let a kid, you know, emerge naturally into who they are. How do you deal with that sort of culture difference? And or, or am I, you know, misunderstanding Confucianism there? Absolutely fascinating, Emil, because I just did a, a, a podcast with, not, excuse me, not a podcast. It was a an hour and a half Zoom with teachers in Shanghai. Right. And they were trying to figure out how do we take thrivers and help our kids develop these skills and traits because these are the ones they need in Shanghai. Singapore asked me the same question. Uh, I've gotten questions from, uh, name a country, they've called the Columbia, uh, phenomenally fascinating because they're all beginning to see these are 
ones that are critical for today's kids. And wherever you are. Been, wherever you are. And they're kind of been undermined in terms of everybody's been hitting the academic achievement. But now what we realize is that our kids are stressed. It is a different world when they're growing up and they're going to need these traits not only to uh, survive, but to thrive. So it's moving away from a bit of that tiger mother approach there in some of those. Well, we learned that one didn't work. Yeah. We actually, the research said, uh uh-uh. In fact, you'll see a footnote in Thrivers saying, don't try it because the research now says you can keep pushing and pushing and pushing. The best study I've ever seen on that one actually was done by Benjamin Bloom. Which kids become the most successful? We're looking at Olympians. We're looking at neurosurgeons, the best top mathematicians. I mean, they really studied hundreds and hundreds and they discovered it was early parenting did make a difference. Now, what did the early parent do? Not push him like Tiger Bob. They identified the strength of the child and then made the first lessons be fun. When we're Mm. going to piano, it's going to be fun. It's not going to be you're going to sit there and just keep going over and over and over Mm. and over. No. And you're also going to have fun to be able to play with your friends. What happened is by the time the kid was 13, he was pulling the parent to the lessons because he Mm. was so ingrained in it and loved it, which comes down to the other thing that's sad. And that University of Chicago did another study that said the average American child, not in Australia, the average American child (laughs) gives up their talent around the age of 13. And the reason is they don't have time for it. Yeah. So maybe one thing as a parent is look at your kid's schedule, figure out what their natural strengths and talents are. So for a while, as I understand it, being an extrovert was seen to be the thing to be particularly if you want to be a leader. But now studies have shown that introverts can be just as good, if not better Mm -hmm. leaders. Do you think there's value in some of the counter character traits to the ones you outline? I'm thinking just randomly, you know, does pessimism allow you to see problems before others see see them and and face them head on? And I was thinking about whether sensitivity rather than self-confidence could be helpful at times, just thinking about the artistic souls whose extreme sensitivity, even self-doubt has propelled some of the greatest literary artistic works. And, and and dare I say, there's real value sometimes in giving up versus persevering. Oh, it's knowing when to quit. No, yes, when to grit, can, grit can put you into a hole in a ditch pretty soon. I think the exactly. first thing with on pessimism yeah. is um, don't call it pessimism, but maybe it's a reality check. Yeah. Because the last thing you want to do is raise your kid to be Pollyanna. You want your child to know this has been two years of a tough year, but you can forge ahead. What are you going to do to help you become your best or how are you going to control it so you still are able to to move forward? The fascinating thing on that one is that uh, many kids have discovered during COVID it was looking to good news instead of the doom, turning off the TV sets. Prayer for some kids, spirituality seemed to help others. A mantra, I got this, seemed to be extremely helpful. I'm almost suggesting the opposite, that when is pessimism actually something that might help a a child thrive? When is sensitivity or, I guess, some of the shadow traits, (laughs) uh, things that might actually, I mean, might not help them to be as happy, but sometimes not being confident can let you see things or do things. Or I guess I'm asking you a question, whether sensitivity or pessimism might actually at times help a child to do better than they might not if they were, you know, optimistic and self-confident and an extrovert. 
Well, once again, they do have to have a reality base that uh, this is in my realm or it's not in my realm. I think one of the most powerful studies I've ever seen on that one was uh, Admiral Stockdale, who was our longest Vietnam prisoner during uh, at Hanoi Hilton. And he said what helped him was uh, a reality of not being too optimistic. He said those who didn't make it actually thought they were going to be out in during Christmas, they didn't survive. Hmm. Said, what happened to me is that I kept the reality that I'm going to do the best I can. We're going to figure out how to take it step by step. And that's what helped. It's pessimism, Emil, is when it becomes permanent, pervasive, and permanent. That's when it's damaging. Everybody's going to have a bad day. You're going to have a bad day. I'm going to have a bad day. But when that's our whole line of thinking, it'll rob every part of your character strength and you become helpless and hopeless. There goes your confidence. There goes any other character strength down. And giving up lack of perseverance. Yeah. How can you keep going? And the other thing is we assume that extroverts are the ones who are going to be the most empathetic. No. We now know that introverts very often are highly empathetic. So yeah. we, we sometimes mis- mistake the temperament or the personality and it, thinking it flaws or goes against the character strength when in reality it's back to where we started. You got to figure out who your kid is. You got to tailor that parenting based on what your child can do or what you can do to help your child be the best they can be and don't stop until you get there. I'm going to ask you a question, Lloyd, just thinking about everything Michelle's taught us here. Your kids, one of whom is a producer, Jonah, are largely grown up. When you think back on your parenting, do you think you could have done more to have changed who they have become or they would have just become who they became anyway? Emil, that is a question I have pondered for myself um, not only many times, but for long periods of times in those many times. Oh, I could, I could list, and I'm sure Jonah could list, uh, a litany of things that I could have done better. I do believe, though, that there are, let's call them on the nature side, genetic uh, mm-hmm. DNA dimensions that account for differences. Some people are smarter than others. Some people are taller than others. Uh, some people have particular traits. And I think that impact with parenting plus culture, plus all the random factors that I think Michelle has highlighted, for example, size of class, who their teacher was, what happened, date in our case of, of, of immigration. I think there are just so many factors that come together that you can't really determine, you know, should I have done this or shouldn't I have done that? There's clearly improvements that one, you know, that I, that I would have made, substantive improvements. Um, but they were also a product of circumstance. Lloyd, I've got to just pause for a second, see if we can get Jonah, our producer. Jonah, are you there? I'm here. You're here. Okay. As Lloyd's son, we've got to bring you into the equation here. And I want to ask you, if you think about your upbringing, would you have turned out the same if Lloyd had acted differently as a parent, if he'd encouraged some of these character traits that Michelle's been talking about in a more active way? Or do you think you basically would have turned out the same? Well, this is a uh, dangerous question with dad in the room. (laughs) But on balance, he's done a good job. There is absolutely no doubt that I live by certain values that have been drilled into me by my parents that I can't see me having should I have been Mm. unlucky enough to be born into parents who just didn't care from, you know, putting community and family first, 
always being generous with time to those in need all the way hmm. to a crash course in investing in ETFs. These are things that I'm not convinced would have come naturally to me without their input. However, I seem to have traits that are nothing to do with them. I'm a studier. I like detail. I like theory. And I think uh, Dad's tried to drag me out of my room kicking and screaming many times. He learns by doing. I learn by learning. And as soon as I moved out, I went back to my equilibrium, which is spending eight to ten hours in my studio without any windows open. And I definitely don't get that from either of my parents. So there's some things that are unexplained by nurture. And I guess somewhere down the line, I have troglodyte DNA. And so maybe as I get older, as I'm further removed from their sphere of influence, I will return more and more to, to being the person my genes want me to be. So in short, I, I have no idea if I would have turned out the same. I'd have to run the simulation with different parents. But for what it's worth, I wouldn't roll the dice again if I was given the option. So that's about as big as a compliment I'm willing to give. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, probably Michelle's the expert here. She's the one who's done most of the A-B testing. And, and I really do want to get to that point, uh, Emil, with Michelle, because I think one of the things, Michelle, going to you now and taking Emil's question is Robert, Robert Plowman you know, that Emil uh, referred to in, in some of his conversation with you uh, in his book, Blueprint, he mentioned an interesting thing when he wrote, wrote Blueprint, which, you know, has been widely acclaimed in the scientific community. But one of the things he said that took him to the type of popularity or fame was that he had a section about parenting around genetics and DNA. And it was that section which sort of, emphasized that it wasn't just about nurture. There was a lot mm -hmm. about genetics. And for a lot of parents, and in fact teachers, it let them off the hook. It reduced their oh. sense of, I've done something wrong. It reduced their sense of shame. And, you know, shame comes from a perception that other people are judging me. And I, I wanted to ask you, before we get into the principle of charity question, which I am going to ask you in a moment, which is what's the strongest view, uh, the alternative view, what, what do you think about that, that issue? That in, in one sense, if kids don't thrive and they're not doing well, the parents feel a sense of both shame or guilt. And how does it, how does it affect the parents' mental health? Lloyd, I think the thing that as soon as you are given that baby, you're going to have guilt or shame no matter what as parents, that's because that's just who we are. We right. try desperately to be the best we can do. Yeah. And no matter yeah. what, what it is, we're always going to feel like we did something wrong. And one reason is parenting has become so darn competitive. We always right. have to look at what she's doing, what he's doing. Mm. And maybe the, the key is that we know something. Yes, nurture is some of it. And yes, nature is some of it. So we we know that we have power here in terms of the nature here. Well, we got to figure out who that kid is and take him where he is. There's also three things that we got to keep in mind. One part of where the child's going to be able to bounce back 
despite the adversity, is whether or not he has protective buffers along the way or the skill sets of that we're talking about in terms of resilience. Can he brainstorm? Does he have something to, to self-soothe? Does mm. he have an optimistic kind of an outlook? There's all different kinds of skills. Mm. Thrivers will give you 21 that are key. But the other thing we know is that people in his lives are critical. If mm. it's not the parent, it could be that one teacher that maximized yeah. his change in his life or that coach or that, gosh, the yep. bus driver, the custodian. The final thing that's fascinating is places. It's the experience. It could be that school and then how much he changes when he goes to that school. Culture and environment can play a big role, as to do neighborhoods, as to do the home environment. So we got to keep all that in mind when we're playing all of this piece called Parenting 101. And we got to do the best we can do. This conversation will continue next week when Lloyd asks Michelle the uncomfortable, edgy questions on the On The Couch feature. And if you like what you heard today, please leave a review. It really helps get our podcasts higher on the podcast algorithms, get us discovered, and spread the word. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.